This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, January 13th, 2019 at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for being with us this morning. My name is Sam, for those who don't know. Um, Just a real quick word before I pray. So January um, 13th, 2013 was the first service for what was first Damascus Road Snohomish. Um, And I think there are some pictures to show you uh, that first service. It took place, um, what is now the laundromat uh, over there in this nice building. It used to be a building that was attached to uh, what was Christ the King. And it was an evening service that began as an experiment. Um, How many were at that first service? Just a handful. Um, And so on our six-year anniversary, God... Um, about the same number of people had I probably asked, which I forgot to ask, first service, probably would have raised their hands, because there was 20 to 30 people, and literally like probably 20 of those people were two families um, that have uh, mucho kiddos. Uh, so we're like, oh, we're huge, right? Um, but God has been so good. Um, on the sixth anniversary, the month of the sixth anniversary, we will be purchasing this building, um, which... Um, I informed the membership uh, online, but just to let you know, um, six months ago, seven months ago, we came to agreement with the landlord to kind of like say, hey, let's, uh, let's move forward and as an act of stewardship, because you'd be surprised how much it is to lease any kind of space for uh, an amount of people over 100, uh, and how many spaces like that are even available, and uh, came to agreement and put it before the church, and the church voted uh, to pursue this by faith and God stirred in the hearts of people and uh, different fundraisers were put together uh, without really anyone asking to do those fundraisers and people began to give 
Uh, and that's really what has happened. And God has uh, faithfully, through His people, uh, made it possible, and even beyond that, to purchase this building and to put ultimately roots down here for the long term. And there's lots of decisions that are made in doing that. Um, and one of those is that we can only be so big, which means we've got to raise up more pa- pastors and planters and missionaries and send them out of here. Um, and we're excited to do that. But we're excited to be here to stay for the long term. Um, it is an amazing opportunity because it's an historic building. And if you were to try and put a church in downtown Snohomish here, it would be near impossible with all the regulations and things that you have to do for parking. And, well, we don't have to do that. Uh, and we're right there by God's grace. And I would argue that most people probably uh, walk into these doors because they see the building. Um, and so we're excited for that. Uh, but just even more than that, excited to see what God has done in six years in bringing a very unique uh, and beautiful people together who are very different than one another, uh, but have the same Savior and are saved in many ways from the same sin. And it's awesome to know that we are not just in relationship, but we are making eternal relationships. There will be lots of Christians in heaven, and we'll know each other. Uh, May not know everybody else. I hope to meet the Apostle Paul. That'd be cool. But we'll know each other. Uh, and I look forward to that day. So I'm going to pray and just thank God for what He has done and pray for more years to come of, of His kingdom going forth from this particular place, uh, which used to be a general store and a livery and a Pontiac dealership, and now is a house of God. Pretty awesome. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for who You are. We are here to worship You, here to praise You, here to declare what You have done for us. Lord, we have contributed nothing to our salvation but our sin. And You have done everything necessary to fix what we broke and to restore the relationship that we can enjoy with You forever. And not only have You done that, Lord, You didn't just save us individually. You didn't just save us personally, but You saved us corporately. You brought brothers and sisters together and we are Your church in this place and in this day for this time. And Lord, we want this generation to be known as a people who love You and a people who made You known to everyone around them. So I thank You for what You have planted in Restoration Road Church. A church that You planned before the foundation of the world. That You planned well before 1882 when this building was built. You knew it would be a house of God and you knew it would be a house for you for many years to come. And so we pray, Lord, that through the proclamation of truth from this place and through the uh, ambassadors that come from this established embassy, that your kingdom will be spread, that your name will be made famous, that people will see this church and say, those people love Jesus and those people love one another and I want to know Him and I want to be known. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. This morning, I pray that as Your Word goes forth, You'll move me out of the way. That Holy Spirit, You'll speak the words that You need to speak to the people You need to speak them to. Words of conviction, words of comfort, whatever they are, lift the veils from our minds and our hearts and let us receive Your Word implanted that we might change from the inside out. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, almost done. Uh, most of us are uh, probably familiar with a particular image that I want to kind of bring up in our minds. And it's the image of perhaps a strange-looking street preacher 
walking around the public square or the public streets holding a sign which reads, Repent, the end is near. Maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've never seen that. Very few, I think, if any people take those warnings seriously if anymore if they ever did. And maybe other than to maybe poke fun at the craziness, most are completely indifferent to it. doesn't even appear on our radar. We look right past it because of all the craziness we already see in the world. Now, despite those common reactions, I think biblically speaking, the sign actually proclaims a very bold and important truth. Repent and the end is near. The return of Christ is near. And the return of Christ is going to signal the beginning of the end of the world as we know it. Time is running out. We always think we have more time. But time is running out. And I proclaim what Jesus proclaimed. Repent and believe, for the end is near. You see, when Jesus walked the earth, He taught that the day of His return was really unknown to anyone. It was unknown to the angels. It was even unknown to the Son Himself. He said it was known only by the Father. After His resurrection, before He ascended to heaven, His disciples asked, Okay, are you going to establish your kingdom now? Because they knew there was an earthly kingdom to be established, a new kingdom. And in response, Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. And He proceeded to tell Him to go into the world and be witnesses. Now despite Jesus' plain teaching that no one's going to know, over the centuries, many have devoted their lives to figuring out or otherwise predicting the day of His return. Even claiming that He has at times. It's exposing many false prophets. Google it. You'd be blown away by how many false predictions by false prophets have come about. Others, completely captivated by the world around them, rarely give it much thought. I would argue even Christians, other than maybe once or twice a year when a sermon out of 1 Thessalonians comes up, do we talk about the return of Christ? Because we too are captivated by the things of the world. Not even the bad things, just things. As of today, it's been just over 2,000 years since Jesus' first coming. And even though the Apostle Peter wrote in his epistle, his second, I believe, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. That the Lord is not slow, but He is patient, wanting everyone He has chosen to repent. Even though those all have been said, many disciples are wondering, when is Jesus returning? Now, if you are just joining us, 
Um, thank you for being here. We work our way basically, for the most part, through books of the Bible. We're in 1 Thessalonians 5. And you'll find this letter is uh, obviously an old letter, thousands of years old, written to, at the time, a new three-month-old church in an ancient city in Greece. And this particular chapter, chapter 5, including 2 Thessalonians, which we'll go through in three sermons after this book, talks a lot about the return of Christ. This particular letter was written probably less than 20 years after Jesus had risen from the dead. And these new converts were taught to expect Jesus' return at any moment. Obviously, Jesus did not return in their lifetime or many lifetimes after that. But Paul's instruction about Jesus' return is no less true, and I would argue perhaps more urgent and important for us to heed today. That's because after 2,000 years, which is a long time, it's pretty easy for us to fall asleep and to treat Jesus' warnings and Jesus' teaching like the crazy old man with the sign. And not even look at it. Give it much thought. So this morning I want to talk about the normal Christian life as the wakeful Christian life. Looking and anticipating and hoping for Jesus' return. If you look at chapter 5 and verse 1, the Apostle begins this way. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Now, previously, if you've been with us, if not, you can look backwards. In chapter 4, Paul had stated the purpose of his writing was so that they would not be uninformed, implying that they didn't know some things, that they were rather ignorant about some things. He had taught them a lot but he perhaps had not taught them enough for specific things about the resurrection of the dead and the return of Christ, which is what he talked about last week, or we talked about last week. 1 Thessalonians 4, the end of chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, was written to bring them comfort. People had died. They had lost loved ones. Believers had passed away or perhaps been killed in persecution. And so he was writing to comfort them To give them information and knowledge and really hope in the certainty of the final resurrection and return of Christ. And now at this point in the letter, Paul states, look, there's no need for me to write to you anything about times and seasons. Meaning that they have been taught. They have already been instructed and now he's going to reteach what he taught about the return of Christ because perhaps... If it's worth saying once, it's worth saying twice. So this phrase, times and seasons, is very frequently used. And it refers really to the unfolding of history. Those singular moments and those eras. And particularly, it's about the specific times and periods of God's redemptive plan or His story that it's unfolded. And God's story, which is the story of all of life, the story of the entire universe, the story of every human ever born or ever will be born, has a very clear beginning. 
And we are in what might be considered the middle. And there is an end that is yet to come. God and His purposes have unfolded in real history. This is not a book of fairy tales. This is not a collection of myths or creative writing. It is an historical report of real events and real people, of real history. And though there are cycles in that history, even cycles of death and resurrection, like seasons that come and go, it is ultimately linear. There is a beginning and there is an end. Paul here is writing about the end. But he's not writing this time about the end in order to comfort believers through the promised resurrection at the return. On the contrary, this time he's writing about the end to challenge believers to live faithfully in light of God's promised judgment at His return. We don't talk about judgment very often. People don't like to hear about judgment, the wrath of God. That's the Old Testament. God. Wrong. According to what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, he basically stated that there were two ways to die. To die with hope or to die hopeless. To die ignorant or to die informed. To die saved or to die lost. And now, as he begins this fifth chapter, he is going to write that there are actually two ways to live. To live faithfully or unfaithfully. To live awake or asleep. To live sober or drunk. So in view of an ending, that there is an end and it is near, that tomorrow is not guaranteed, though we functionally act as if we believe that, many declare carpe diem. There's no guarantee. Let's seize the day. Just live it up for we know not what's going to happen. And while I do believe that there is some goodness and we'll go through Ecclesiastes in a couple months, which emphasizes the idea of enjoying the smaller things of life. Rejoicing in each moment that God gives us. The Bible does teach us, however, that we should not only live for a day that has come, but that we should actually live for the day that will come. The day. So if you look at verse 2, it says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The day of the Lord. Now the day of the Lord uh, is an Old Testament concept that uh, comes to uh, present itself in the New. And it usually referred to um, events that take place at the end of history or the end of an era. It, in the Old Testament, is associated typically with an actual day or at least a specific time 
or period of time when God's redemptive purposes are fulfilled through God's personal intervention. And certainly God is personally involved in all of history, personally involved in all of creation, but there's those moments when God shows up, when His intervention is clearly tangible in a way that's powerful. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord conveyed a sense of imminent intervention. The prophets often employing the phrase, the day of the Lord is near. At different times, they were speaking about a very near day where God intervened to save His people, to judge His people, or to destroy His enemies. But the day of the Lord also referred to a future day, a final day that was yet to come. And so taken together, when we think of the day of the Lord, it carries the power to direct us in the present and then give us hope for the future. Now the New Testament, as it begins to talk about this day, it refers to it often as the day of wrath, the day of visitation, and it's most associated with the return of Jesus Christ when He redeems His people and He judges His enemies. And that's the kind of paradox of the day. It's both a day of salvation and it's a day of judgment. It's a day of God's retribution of evil and it's a, God, it's a day of God's restoration of good. These two things happening at the same time. And although it's most often associated with the phrase, on that day, so it'll say, on that day, followed by some description. On that day, this will happen. On that day, it'll be like this. On that day, it's called many other things in the Scriptures, including the day of our Lord, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the day of God. The day. In this context, the day of the Lord, Paul is referring to is the return of the Son of God Himself, which he described in Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, where Jesus will literally descend from heaven personally, and He'll be accompanied by those who have rised, or, or the dead in Christ will rise to meet Him, those who are alive will come to meet Him, and He will come like an army with a battle cry, ready for war. And for the non-believer, this day is neither expected nor desired. The world is too busy anticipating the arrival of other days and other saviors in their lives. And it's so important when we talk about the world, I am talking about the unbelieving world, but it's so easy for many of us to live as if we are functionally unbelievers in our approach to the world. What I mean is the world is celebrating and anticipating and waiting for and excited about so many other days and other saviors. The day of promotion. The day of the birth of a child, the day of a marriage, the day of my 15 minutes of fame, or the day of whatever. And it's not to suggest that any of those days are intrinsically evil. Many of those days are wonderful. 
It's to ask, what are we captivated by? What are we looking for? What are we hoping in? Because many times, that which we are hoping in and thinking about most and captivated by most is actually a new functional Savior. This is why the day, because the way the world is captivated by so many other days and so many other Saviors, they're not thinking about the day and the Savior who will return. And that's why Paul says it will come upon the people like a thief in the night. Goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Thieves don't tell you ahead of time that they're going to break into your home or your car. They don't leave you a little note, hey, please leave the key under the mat while I break in. It'd be nice if you had the drawers already open, the jewelry out, right? The thieves come, they break in at a time of darkness where we don't expect, and most people are found unprepared. There's something that we have to understand that Jesus teaches in the Scriptures. There's a wide way that's comfortable and many find that leads to destruction. And there's a narrow way that leads to the Lord. What that tells is that majority of people are going to die in their sins. The majority of people are going to be surprised at the return of Christ. Because the majority of people are unprepared. They haven't been anticipating They haven't been thinking of the things of God at all. They've been ignoring all the warnings like the old man on the street. The emphasis in Paul's metaphor, a metaphor that's used by Jesus Himself, by the Apostle Peter, is surprise. And the people Paul refers to are the unbelievers who are saying, ah, there's peace and the security in my life and in the world. And the reason why they are saying that It's because the only place they are looking and they are devoted to finding, achieving peace is in the world. They believe that peace can be accomplished as they look at the world and see the chaos. They go, well, we just need to fight the political battles. We need to fight some social battles or the relational battles or the material battles. Like We need to fight those, make war on those and bring peace. And the truth is that even if peace is achieved politically, even if peace is achieved materially and relationally and socially, what everyone or most fail to realize is the only place they truly need peace is with God. I would argue you could accomplish peace in all those areas and still be at war with the one person you need peace with. And so, while people are eating, while they're drinking and working and legislating and building and marrying and living, Christ will come. And He will reveal in that moment, and it will be a moment, that many, that most, have given their best to good things that are not God things. And they've even made a few gods out of those good things. One commentator noted this, which I thought it was very 
appropriate, to understand what we're talking about. It's not just the good things, it's the captivation by them. He said, what could be wrong with receiving physical nourishment, carrying on commerce and industry, being engaged in agriculture or planning a wedding? By means of these things, God can be glorified and without doubt He can. But when the soul becomes entirely wrapped in them, so that they become ends in themselves, and so that the high spiritual needs are neglected, they are a curse and no longer a blessing. The return of Christ will surprise many because they are wrapped up in the world. Because most do not believe, most will be shocked at the return of the warrior king Jesus because they are ultimately blind to the most important battle being fought in the hearts of men. His return will also come to them. Paul often talks about them and they, the people, very third person pronouns. He says it come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, many have heard the thief of the night metaphor, I'm sure. But I don't often hear people using the second metaphor that Paul employs, labor pains in pregnancy. It's kind of strange. And whenever you encounter a metaphor in the Bible, it's really easy to kind of get creative with it. I'm an English teacher, so I go, oh, it probably means this, it means this. And you kind of just build it out because the metaphor seems to work, but taken out of context, that's really dangerous. And so, the emphasis Paul is trying to make when he talks about labor pains in pregnancy is not the pain of childbirth, though it's painful. It's not the beauty that comes as a result of that pain, though it's beautiful. He is talking about the certainty of birth signaled by those birth pains. What I mean is that when labor starts, there's a baby coming. A baby is going to be born one way or another. And in the same way, there is no escape from the day of the Lord. There's no negotiating. There's no stopping it. There's no avoiding it. There's no delaying it. The end is certain to come to us all and with it, judgment. And we must all ask ourselves, are we ready? Are we ready? Well, Paul teaches the Thessalonians that the Christian experience to life, particularly in the context of anticipating the return of Christ, is different. The Christian those who have been saved by Jesus, those whose eyes were blind now see, those who were dead that Jesus made alive, those who looked at the Gospel and said that's foolishness and something happened as God regenerated their heart and it became the very wisdom of God. Those, they are not surprised. If you look at verse 4, Paul says, but you. He's been talking about the world. Them. They. The people. 
And now he starts to talk to the Christian. He says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. What Paul does in these few verses is so important for all of us as Christians and as the church. Whenever a pastor or a friend appeals to behave a certain way, it should never start there. It should roll back and start with identity. Remember who you are. You, Christian, are one that God chose before the foundation of the world, knowing every evil thought, deed you'd ever do, past, present, and future. And He redeemed you. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are adopted. You are blessed. And there's an inheritance waiting in heaven for you. Know who you are. Now live. If you get your justification mixed up with your sanctification, if you get your identity mixed up with your behavior, I better behave or God doesn't love me. God loves you! You are approved. You are loved. You are His child irrevocably. Now live like it. So this is what Paul does. You are. You are. You are. So let us. He appeals to their Gospel identity speaking to who they are. In contrast to the non-believing majority of mankind, the Christian's not surprised because the return of Christ is something that His children are waiting for, longing for, thinking about, talking about, hoping in. So Paul presents a really clear identity, I mean a dichotomy of identities that should impact how we behave. That do impact how we behave. He says the non-believer is described as one in darkness, a child of night. And I say non-believer in that Every single person, every born ever is at one point a child of darkness. That's where they begin. If you are not in Christ right now, this is you. If you are in Christ, this was you. A child in darkness. A child of wrath. A child of the night. Figuratively and literally, those in darkness, those living at night, are lost. This isn't just like, you know, uh, dusk. It's dark. You cannot see anything. Those in darkness cannot see. They cannot see what is right. They cannot see what is wrong. They can't see what's up or down, left or right. They walk around feeling their way through life, making decisions and ultimately hurting themselves and others as they hit their head, as they fall in holes, as they walk over edges, 
As they step on every sinful Lego piece left on the ground. Parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They can't see. And so in many ways, it's wrong to expect someone in darkness to behave correctly. They need the light. But despite that pain, this is the ugliness of sin, just the, the horrible nature of sin. Like Those who walk in darkness actually love the darkness. That's what the Apostle John says. That they hate the light. They want nothing to do with the light. They want nothing to do with Jesus or His ways. Not only can those in the darkness not see, they love it so much because they can't be seen. That's why they remain in darkness. It's a place to keep secrets. It's a place to hide sin. According to the Apostle John, those who say they have fellowship with God but walk in the darkness are not genuine Christians, but they're liars. And the day of the Lord, the arrival of the light, Jesus is called in John's Gospel and in John's epistles. When the light appears and everything is exposed, the truth will be revealed. Because we can fool each other pretty easily. And we can even be self-deceived. Go read Matthew 7 for a terrifying passage that the Lord teaches about those who come before the judge at the end of the age and ultimately talk about themselves and everything they did. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Away from me, you child of wickedness. And then Paul gives a contrast though, right? He says, the Christian is an individual who has been transformed, right? We're all born children of wrath. We're all born child, children of darkness. But there's a rebirth. There's a transformation that occurs through the salvation that comes from Jesus Christ. Transformed from a child of darkness into a child of light. From a child of the night to a child of the day. I love that Paul doesn't speak about what we will become at Christ's return. One day, you'll be a child of light. One day, you'll be a child of the King. No, you are now! Right now, in Christ, you are a child of the King, a child of the light, a child of the day. Now, in Christ. Love Romans 8.1, right? There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. He didn't speak about what we will become, but what we are. Those who are children of light, guess what? They've come into the light and they've been exposed. Their sin's been revealed. And their wounds have been healed. They've confessed. Oh, everyone knows. And Jesus says, yeah, and those who confess are cleansed. They're freed. They now see rightly. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians like the natural man can't even understand spiritual things. But now your eyes have been opened. You can see in the daytime. Okay, 
I know there's a hole there. I know there's an edge there. I know this is good. I know this is bad. I know this is up, this is down, this is left, this is right. I know. I can see. And therefore, you can be expected to walk. Not only can you see rightly, in many ways, the child of light desires to be seen. I desire to be known. Because I've been redeemed, and I've been forgiven, and I've been adopted and blessed by Christ who knew everything. He knew every rotten, ugly, dark secret I had that no one knew, and even knows the ones I don't know that I'm going to do yet. And yet He loved me. And He died for me. So, I'm not afraid. I don't need to hide in the darkness to obtain the approval of men because I got the approval of God. In Christ, I've been freed from that guilt and freed from that shame because that's how powerful the Gospel is. And shame and guilt are the main reasons why we hide in the darkness. So Paul says the child of the light, the child of day, the same person lives differently The child of the light, unlike the people of the darkness, don't sleep. They keep awake. They have eyes wide open, not eyes shut. And to be awake is to live watchfully. To be aware of temptations, right? To walk carefully. Praying and looking and anticipating for Christ's return. To be looking. To be thinking about spiritual things. The child of the day, unlike the people of the night, doesn't get drunk but remains sober. And certainly the Bible has much to say about drunkenness. And Paul is using this as a metaphor to describe the contrast of the Christian and the non-Christian, right? Those who are drunk and those who are sober. When you're drunk, you're controlled. You have indulged in some aspect of creation, some aspect of sin, and it is the thing governing you. It is the thing impairing and and dictating your judgment, and it's not good. But the sober is controlled by the love of Christ through God's Spirit and nothing else. The sober are filled, governed by God's Spirit as they drink deeply of the Word of God and they walk with God purposefully, carefully, and yes, imperfectly. But we walk with God. Countless times in the Bible, God comes to the Joshua's and, and the other you know, people in the Old Testament and says, be careful to walk according to as I've told you. We walk purposefully. We Certainly walk carefully, but we know we walk imperfectly. Wakeful and sober living means living in the recognition that we are in a cosmic war zone. Like even though we know the war has been won, it's not over. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. As I said that last service, I was struck by how often some of the tensions in our lives, some of the difficulties in our lives, stuff like parenting, where we consider this a battle of flesh and blood. 
Or there must be something we can fix pragmatically, physically, emotionally. How we forget that there's a spiritual battle being waged. That we are under assault. And we're so dismissive of some of the little tensions and conflicts in our life. Some of the things that come up even from within our flesh. We're like, oh, that's just me being weird. And I'm not suggesting Satan's under every rock, but it's to say that you are in a war zone and the battle is not against flesh and blood. And that's what the Bible teaches us. It says that it's against the rulers and the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, spiritual forces that want to destroy your faith and kill your family. You're in a war zone. So Paul is employing us like, armor up! And he says two particular pieces of armor, the breastplate and the helmet. And you could have an entire sermon, Ephesians 6 kind of fleshes it out even further of this idea of armor and what that means. In my view, he's given us two pieces that are super important. The breastplate of, breastplate of faith and love. And obviously, that goes right over the chest. And what does it do? Protects the heart. What does the heart need protection for? Because all kinds of false saviors are trying to get in there and give you a new identity that's not based on Christ, and it's based on someone or something else. And more often than not, that comes from lies through the head, and so we need to put our helmet on of salvation. Whereas the thing we hope in most, and certainly we could go crazy with this armor metaphor, whatever else it might mean, we know simply this. We are not supposed to walk onto a spiritual battlefield spiritually naked without protection for the most sensitive spiritual parts of our body. I can get a hand blow off and be okay. I can lose a leg and survive. I cannot take a hit to the heart. And I cannot take a hit to the head. I need protection. The head and heart work very closely together to shape who we are. And so we must guard both. Or we end up functionally living like children of darkness and children of the night and being surprised when the Lord Jesus returns. Look at verse 9 and 10. It says, for God... So whenever you see a four, or He said this big thing, this is how we ought live. This is who we are. When you see the four, He's like, because of this, here's the reason. Here's the support behind it. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. And he changes his use of awake and asleep there. So we'll address that. But the Christian lives faithfully, looking forward to the return of Christ because God has planned to pour out His wrath on His enemies. I hope you understand, mankind's beef is not with the flesh and it's not with Satan. Man is hostile toward God. 
God is going to pour out His just and holy wrath on this world. There is a wrath that is coming. But God has destined those He loves to be saved from that wrath. From Himself. And He's accomplished that salvation Himself. Because we could not. He has through Christ adopted us as sons. And those who believe that Jesus Christ lived the life they could not live and died the death that they deserve will be saved from God's wrath. That is the one name given under heaven through which men might be saved from God's wrath. This is what Jesus Himself says. In John chapter 12, He's crying out to the crowds and He says, whoever believes in Me believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And whoever sees Me sees Him who sent Me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects Me and does not receive My words has a judge. The word I've spoken will judge him on that last day. Jesus Himself has said, if you do not believe in Me, you will die in your sins eternally. That doesn't have to be the case for anybody here. Because those who heard it in the day that Jesus spoke it were then responsible for it as those who are all here now are responsible for what you have heard. Salvation, though, is not just for those near death or dead. Salvation is for the living. Salvation is not just some hellfire insurance card that you get to have. Salvation is for today. Salvation is not just to be experienced in the afterlife. It is to be enjoyed and lived now in this life. Paul says that Jesus died so that whether we're awake or asleep, he's not talking spiritually now. Now he's talking whether you are alive or dead. So those, he's already said, who are dead in Christ, man, they are with Jesus right now, and someday they're going to be resurrected and their bodies will be reunited with Him and they'll be glorified and amazing. But those who are now awake are to live with Him now. So how should we live? Knowing the Lord is returning. How should that change? Well, Jesus Himself taught this in Matthew 24. Beginning in verse 42, He says, Stay awake! Not just in the sermon. Stay awake! For you don't know on what day your Lord is coming, but you know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house broken into. Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? He's basically saying, who's going to be faithful? Blessed 
is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on the day when he does not expect, in an hour he does not know, and he'll cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let us not be hypocrites. Let us live who we are and wait as we should. Very simply, what does it look like to live in anticipation of the return of Christ? Well, as you are waiting, be working. Be praying for that return. The faithful servant works up until the day the master returns, like Noah who was building and building and building without being told ever that the rains are going to come. This day, it's just like, the rains are here, get in the boat. Obeying faithfully. You are stewards of the master's stuff, not your own, and we are employing it for the master's work, not our own, for the master's glory, not our own, until he returns. And despite what is easy to do, what is popular to do, or even what personal desires I have, we are called to do what the Master has told us to do with His stuff, including this life that He has bought with the price of Jesus' blood. So we work and we prepare. Not work to get salvation, work because we have it. And as we wait, we watch. The faithful servant lives really in a beautiful fear of the Master doing what is expected even when He doesn't show up that day or the next day or the next day. Even if all the other servants are doing it wrong. We love to play the compare game. Well, these Christians, like, who cares what these, those, they are doing? What are you called to do before the Lord? And as you're waiting, be warning. Be preaching. We have a responsibility because we are not just disciples, we're ambassadors. And we are called to warn the world of the wrath to come. Ezekiel 33 tells us that if you don't warn, the blood is on your head. And if you warn faithfully and no one listens, the blood is on theirs. So we are warning. But the warning in that is also an invitation to say there is a path to be saved. There is a place to be redeemed. There is a place to be forgiven. There is an eternal life to enjoy with our Savior and King. So we go about warning and telling people as we watch. Let us remember that on the night that Jesus was arrested, the men that were closest to Him, that walked with Jesus for three years, went to the Garden of Gethsemane with Him, and what did Jesus tell them? Watch and pray. He went off and prayed by Himself, and He came back and He said, Simon, are you asleep? You couldn't wait one hour? Pray. And watch that you may not enter into temptation because the Spirit is indeed willing and the flesh is weak. We are apt to be sleepy. 
and we are to pray for God's help that we might not be. Many of Jesus' so-called disciples have fallen asleep today because after 2,000 years, many pridefully believe that the end is not near, just like the world. But in the light of Christ's imminent return, Paul ends this letter with these Christians saying, encourage one another. So let me encourage you in this way. Stay awake. The end is near. The end is coming. Pray for Jesus' return. Prepare to meet Jesus and preach and tell others about Jesus and His imminent return. And as Jonathan Edwards did resolve many years ago, never do anything which you would be afraid to do if it were your last hour of your life. Yes, watch yourself. Watch the skies. Or as Jesus said, In Luke 21, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness in the cares of this life. Notice the contrast there. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Stay awake and pray that you, unlike the world, will escape and enjoy eternal life with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.